Chapter Twelve of Popular History of Ireland, Book Nine by Thomas Darcy McGee, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Twelve, Ireland under the Protectorate, Administration of Henry Cromwell, Death of Oliver. The English Republic rose from the scaffold of the King in sixteen forty nine. Its first government was a council of state of forty one members. Under this council, Cromwell held at first the title of Lord General, but on the sixteenth of December, sixteen fifty three. He was solemnly installed in Westminster Hall, as Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland. He was then in his fifty-fourth year. His reign, if such it may be called, lasted less than five years. The policy of the Protector towards Ireland is even less defensible than his military severities. For the barbarities of war there may be some apology. The poor one, at least, that such outrages are inseparable from war itself but for the cold-blooded, deliberate atrocities of peace, no such defence can be permitted before the tribunal of a free posterity. The long Parliament, still dragging out its date, under the shadow of Cromwell's great name, declared in its session of 1652, the rebellion in Ireland subdued and ended, and proceeded to legislate for that kingdom as a conquered country. On the 12th of August they passed their act of settlement, the authorship of which was attributed to Lord Orrery, in this respect, the worthy son of the first Earl of Cork. Under this act, there were four chief descriptions of persons whose status was thus settled. First, all ecclesiastics and royalist proprietors were exempted from pardon of life or estate. Second, all royalist commissioned officers were condemned to banishment, and the forfeit of two-thirds of their property, one-third being retained for the support of their wives and children. Third, those who had not been in arms, but could be shown by a parliamentary commission, to have manifested a constant good affection to the war, were to forfeit one-third of their estates, and to receive an equivalent for the remaining two-thirds west of the Shannon. Fourth, all husbandmen and others of the inferior sort, not possessed of lands or good exceeding the value of ten pounds, were to have a free pardon, on condition also of transporting themselves across the Shannon. The last condition of the Cromwellian settlement distinguished it, in our annals, from every other prescription of the native population formerly attempted. The great river of Ireland, rising in the mountains of Letrum, nearly severs the five western counties from the rest of the kingdom. The province thus set apart, though one of the largest in superficial extent, had also the largest proportion of waste and water, mountain and moorland. The new inhabitants were there to congregate from all the other provinces before the first day of May, 1654, under penalty of outlawry and all its consequences, and when there they were not to appear within two miles of the Shannon or four miles of the sea. A rigorous transport system, to evade which was death without form of trial, completed this settlement, the design of which was to shut up the remaining Catholic inhabitants from all intercourse with mankind, and all communion with the other inhabitants of their own country. A new survey of the whole kingdom was also ordered, under the direction of Dr. William Petty, the fortunate economist, who founded the house of Lansdowne. By him the surface of the kingdom was estimated at ten millions and a half of plantation acres, three of which were deducted for waste and water. Of the remainder, above five million were in Catholic hands in 1641, three hundred thousand were church and college lands, and two million were in possession of the Protestant settlers of the reigns of James and Elizabeth. Under the protectorate, five million acres were confiscated. This enormous spoil, two-thirds of the whole island, went to the soldiers and adventurers who had served against the Irish, 
or had contributed to the military chest, since 1641, except 700,000 acres given in exchange to the banished in Clare and Connaught, and 1,200,000 confirmed to innocent papists. Such was the complete uprooting of the ancient tenantry or clansmen, from their original holdings, that during the survey, orders of Parliament were issued to bring back individuals from Connaught to point out the boundaries of parishes in Munster. It cannot be imputed among the sins so freely laid to the historical account of the native legislature that an Irish Parliament had any share in sanctioning this universal spoliation. Cromwell anticipated the union of the kingdoms by a hundred and fifty years, when he summoned in 1653 that assembly over which Praise God Bare Bones presided. Members for Ireland and Scotland sat on the same benches with the Commons of England. Oliver's first deputy in the government of Ireland was his son-in-law Fleetwood, who had married the widow of Ireton, but his real representative was his fourth son, Henry Cromwell, commander-in-chief of the army. In 1657 the title of Lord Deputy was transferred from Fleetwood to Henry, who united the supreme civil and military authority in his own person, until the eve of the Restoration, of which he became an active partisan. We may thus properly embrace the five years of the Protectorate as the period of Henry Cromwell's administration. In the absence of a Parliament, the Government of Ireland was vested in the Deputy, the Commander-in-Chief, and four Commissioners, Ludlow, Corbett, Jones, and Weaver. There was, moreover, a High Court of Justice, which perambulated the kingdom, and exercised an absolute authority over life and property, greater than even Strafford's Court of Castle Chambers had pretended to. Over this court presided Lord Lowther, assisted by Mr. Justice Donnellan, by Cook, solicitor to the Parliament on the trial of King James, and the regicide, Reynolds. By this court, Sir Phelim O'Neill, Viscount Mayo, and Colonels O'Toole and Bagnall were condemned and executed. By them the mother of Colonel Fitzpatrick was burnt at the stake, and Lords Muscary and Clanmelier set at liberty, through some secret influence. The commissioners were not behind the High Court of Justice in executive offices of severity. Children under age, of both sexes, were captured by thousands and sold as slaves to the tobacco-planters of Virginia and the West Indies. Secretary Thurlow informs Henry Cromwell that, the committee of the council have authorized one thousand girls and as many youths to be taken up for that purpose. Sir William Petty mentions six thousand Irish boys and girls shipped to the West Indies. Some cotemporary accounts make the total number of children and adults so transported one hundred thousand souls. To this decimation we may add thirty-four thousand men of fighting age, who had permission to enter the armies of foreign powers, at peace with the Commonwealth. The chief commissioners, sitting at Dublin, had their deputies in a commission of delinquencies, sitting at Athlone, and another of transportation, sitting at Logray. Under their superintendence, the distribution made of the soil among the Puritans was nearly as complete as that of Canaan by the Israelites. Whenever native laborers were found absolutely necessary for the cultivation of the estates of their new masters, they were barely tolerated as the Gibeonites had been by Joshua. Such Irish gentlemen as had obtained pardons were obliged to wear a distinctive mark on their dress under pain of death, those of inferior rank were obliged to wear a round black spot on the right cheek, under pain of a branding-iron, and of the gallows. If a Puritan lost his life in any district inhabited by Catholics, the whole population were held subject to military execution. For the rest, whenever Tory or recusant fell into the hands of these military colonists, or the garrisons which knitted them together, they were assailed with the war-cry of the Jews, 
that thy feet may be dipped in the blood of thine enemies, and that the tongues of thy dogs may be red with the same. Thus penned in between the mile line of the Shannon, the four-mile line of the sea, the remnant of the Irish nation passed seven years of a bondage unequalled in severity by anything which can be found in the annals of Christendom. The conquest was not only a military but a religious subjugation. The twenty-seventh of Elizabeth, the old act of uniformity, was rigorously enforced. The Catholic lawyers were disbarred and silenced. The Catholic schoolmasters were forbidden to teach, under pain of felony. Recusants, surrounded in glens and caves, offering up the holy sacrifice through the ministry of some daring priest, were shot down or smoked out like vermin. The ecclesiastics never, in any instance, were allowed to escape. Among those who suffered death during the short space of the protectorate are counted three bishops and three hundred ecclesiastics. The surviving prelates were in exile, except the bedridden Bishop of Kilmore, who for years had been unable to officiate. So that now that ancient hierarchy which in the worst Danish wars had still recruited its ranks as fast as they were broken, seemed on the very eve of extinction. Throughout all the island no episcopal hand remained to bless altars, to ordain priests, or to confirm the faithful. The Irish Church, as well as the Irish State, touched its lowest point of suffering and endurance in the decade which intervened between the death of Charles I and the death of Cromwell. The new population imposed upon the kingdom soon split up into a multitude of sects. Some of them became Quakers, many adhered to the Anabaptists, others, after the Restoration, conformed to the established Church. That deeper tincture of Puritanism which may be traced in the Irish, as compared with the English establishment, took its origin even more from the Cromwellian settlement than from the Calvinistic teachings of Archbishop Usher. Oliver died in 1658, on his fortunate day, the 3rd of September, leaving England to experience twenty months of republican intrigue and anarchy. Richard Cromwell, Lambert, Ludlow, Monk, each played his part in the stormy interval, till, the time being ripe for a restoration, Charles II landed at Dover on the 23rd of May, 1660, and was carried in triumph to London. End of chapter 12 End of Popular History of Ireland, Book 9, by Thomas Darcy McGee Read by Sibella Denton in Carrollton, Georgia, in January 2009 For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org